for the military as defence chiefs plug a billion pound gap. You have to make your decisions about what it is you do and what risks you place the country in. And are we failing troops with mental health problems? When you've got people exposed to hard, uh, vicious fighting, that's going to have effects. BFBS. Headlines. David Cameron's defending the decision to scrap Britain's Nimrod spy planes. Six former defence chiefs have warned it threatens national security, but Downing Street says the Nimrods were over budget and delayed. The compensation payments for British troops with mental health problems are to be trebled. From next month, the maximum award will be £140,000 and payments from the last five years will be reviewed. The News of the World's dismissing reports. Reporters there were involved in phone hacking as recently as last year. Police are now saying no stone will be left unturned in their investigations and insist they're not afraid of scrutiny of the way they've handled the case. For a third day, there have been anti-government demonstrations in Egypt. There have also been protests in Yemen against the country's president. The unrest follows the popular uprising earlier this month in Tunisia. The Chancellor may scrap a rise in fuel duty, which is due to be imposed in April. George Osborne says he'll announce in the budget whether he'll cancel the planned increase. That's the latest. I'm Vicky Turner. Last autumn's defence review included some painful decisions and deep cuts across the forces. But now it seems it was only just the beginning. This week, officials at the MOD have been discussing how to find at least another billion pounds in savings this year. And it's reported some big projects could be under threat. It's just three months since the Strategic Defence and Security Review, but it seems officials got their sums badly wrong. So how did it happen? Here's Paul Osborne. The cuts set out in the SDSR were meant to save around £8 billion by 2015, but the arrival of a new top civil servant at the MOD has highlighted this huge shortfall. Ursula Brennan's reportedly less tolerant of the assumptions made by the Ministry in its calculations, but that means they now need to save as much as £1.6 billion on top of the Defence Review's cuts. Back in October, the Prime Minister denied the review had been rushed. Some people say this has been done quickly. I accept. Five months is a relatively short period of time. But do you know what? We can't keep putting off these decisions. It's better, I think, for the future of the armed forces. The decisions don't get any easier. So why not get on and make them where you can to give people certainty about the great capabilities that armed services will have in the future? Well, now it seems those certainties are again in doubt, but the MOD insists it's not reopening the SDSR. Instead, this is just the annual planning round. Reportedly, though, everything is on the table and some big projects could come under the spotlight. At that table, Ursula Brenham, as well as the Chief of the Defence Staff and the three service chiefs. And also Bernard Gray, the new Chief of Defence Material, the man who, in 2009 revealed a £36 billion black hole in defence spending and wrote a damning report on how it happened. His views on how to plug this gap could prove crucial. No ministers sit on this board, but they'll make the final decisions 
due by the end of March. Paul Osborne reporting while in the studio with me is our defence analyst Christopher Lee and I'm also joined by Michael Codner, Director of Military Sciences at the Royal United Services Institute. Hello to both of you. Um, Michael Codner, um, it sounds like no one at the MOD can actually add up. Well, when the uh, SGSR, the Strategic Defence and Security Review, came out, uh, that was designed to, to, among other things, to make the big cuts that needed to be addressed in the Comprehensive Spending Review. We then went into um, the planning round for 2011, and that was meant to go into the detail. So it was expected that there would be further cuts, but they weren't going to be the big significant headline cuts which would come out of that. The fact that we have this discrepancy um, uh, is, is another matter, and it's all to do, to my mind, with um, the assumptions that are being made by uh, the Ministry of Defence and the uh, level of probability that you can associate with those assumptions. By that, you're, you're saying they were over-optimistic in how much they might save when they actually drew up the defence review? It's assumptions as to what um, might need to be spent in the future. Because yes. that billion figure is, is really quite, quite it's, shocking. It's, it's, it's certainly significant against the eight, eight billion saving. I mean, that's a lot of money. Yeah. Uh, Christopher Lee, um, has this new shortfall, <clears throat> it's come to light as a result of the new Permanent Secretary at the MOD, Ursula Brennan, what do you think of her? No, I mean, uh, crikey, I mean, her previous job was uh, second, per- second permanent secretary, you know, well, one maybe, down, maybe the number she, two. Maybe she's fessing up now. She was in charge of the budget. So uh, we, we read the headlines, they say, oh, you know, we, we put Ursula in there and she's going to fix this. She appears on the 9th of February before the House of Commons Defence Committee to explain what had been happening in 2009 as well as 2010. She is largely responsible... I mean, she didn't do the sums herself, but she's largely responsible anyway. You've also got to avoid the headlines on this, haven't you? Somebody says, oh, well, it's a million, a billion, then somebody says 1.6 billion. At the moment, A, nobody knows. Two, as you make cuts and you do things, you actually find that you're going to have to do something else. And that's where all these figures come from. The third part of it, I know there's a lot of lobbying going on. There's a lot of feeding to the media going on by the chiefs of staff who are tr- trying to put around the old scare stories that we so heard in the 70s. basically you open one can of worms and you find another can of worms inside, is what you're saying? The whole place is wriggling. <laughs> I mean, to, f- to be fair, you could say that Ursula Brennan, coming in from where she was, she's the one who uh, was responsible for the figures. She's coming in saying, look, I know the figures, this is what it so really is, she, so this is what we've got to do. She should know what she's talking yeah. about. So how do you save um, up to £1.6 billion, pounds, I mean, and, uh, just following on from that, and she's also, you're out of the politics of the defence review, so you can now um, move away well, be from... Be a bit more honest. Be a bit more <laughs> honest, exactly. Um, uh, the savings, um, very good question. I, I I think it'd be fair to say that the one service in terms of the things you can save from that can't take any more is the Royal Navy. Bearing in mind this is the service, this is uh, above all the others intricately connected with all the obligations of government for defence of British territory and British overseas territories uh, and it suffered much heavier cuts in proportion than either of the other two services. The RAF, the uh, uh, there could be trimmings made to the numbers of tornadoes, etc. But the important thing is, which mm. hasn't been done yet, is that the army could still have uh, bigger cuts so in you personnel reckon, uh, numbers. Yeah, and on that, and on that, will the prime minister go on, Chris? Right, no, I'm say? just going to say, waggling listen, your finger the, the, the navy <laughs> is starting to get some of these lobby groups together. You navy put, starting you to fight the back. the navy button. That's what you did, Michael. No, no, no. <laughs> they've started to fight back. The navy believed they were screwed by the RAF, and there's a lot of evidence mm. to prove that the RAF went into the prime minister, gave a lot of rough figures, and the prime minister and the chief secretary of treasurer 
Treasury bought them. That included at the time the Chief of the Defence Staff, who was an RAF man. So there is a lot of fight back going on. I think some dirty fighting going on in, 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 in the MOD at the moment. I think over the next few weeks... We're going to see far more of these 1. million, 1. billion, 1.6 billion stories going around. Can we save? Uh, can we save this aircraft? Can we save this ship? Mm. It's only just started this whole SDSR uh, re-debate. You mentioned the army and how there will have to be some cuts made there. Do you think the prime minister will be able to keep that promise, Michael, um, to protect frontline operations in Afghanistan? I think there is a growing view that. Uh, the army itself uh, could um, be rationalised in terms of numbers without affecting um, in any sense uh, the frontline figures in Afghanistan. So there's or, stuff that's not really being yeah. tackled I mean, at already all. the Royal Marines who uh, operate routinely in Afghanistan have um, a, a much uh, um, uh, tougher harmony rules than the army does for, for the amount of time they spend away from abroad from their families, etc. And they are part of the naval service. Uh, the is a lot of reform that inevitably will happen when the army comes back from Germany. There's a lot of rationalisation. There's a move away from the garrison structures that go back to the Cold War and still exist and are so integrated into communities and things that there's huge political problems with moving ahead with that. So you have this huge legacy problem with reform of the army, which was protected in last-minute deals uh, over Afghanistan uh, in, uh, during the review. Okay. Um, well, one of the most controversial decisions from the SDSR was implemented this week when work began to dismantle nine RAF Nimrod spy planes. They cost £4 billion, never left the ground, and are now being torn apart at two airfields in the northwest of England. Six leading military figures have signed a letter calling the decision to scrap Nimrod perverse and warning it leaves a massive gap in British security. It also means closure for RAF in loss. The SNP's Angus Robertson is the local MP. I think it's really hard for anybody to understand why it is that we as taxpayers have spent nearly £4 billion on nine planes which are largely ready to fly to perform a vital security and defence role for the UK are being hidden away behind screens and being cut up for landfill. Frankly, it's a total disgrace and an act of vandalism and it's opening a big military capability gap which makes this country less safe uh, than it was before. Well, the Armed Forces Minister Nick Harvey says it would have been financial folly not to cancel Nimrod. But Madeleine Moon, a Labour member of the Commons Defence Select Committee, thinks it raises wider questions. You have to make your decisions about what it is you do and what risks you place the country in, in terms of its overall strategic defence. We've just kicked a huge hole into the defence capabilities of the UK. I think this decision has been driven more by saving money. So, Christopher, are we at greater risk without Nimrod? You must be. I mean, if you've got a capability and you're not using it, you're in greater risk. If you can assess What's the risk? what the risk is. Mm. Now, this is the great difficulty. You don't risk, you don't say, for example, Nimrod, what would you use it for? You'd use it for the defence of, of the Trident uh, uh, ballistic nuclear uh, submarine. Um, you, you would use it for SE rescue, search and rescue. You'd use it for ASW. You'd use it for reconnaissance, all sorts of things. But you've got to decide, can other elements be used for that. In the end, the word in Whitehall is that the RF decided that it had to hang on to Tornado. The, R the Tornado Mafia 
part of the uh, that's, that's in the RF at the moment. So we are <laughs> I willing never knew to... it existed, actually. Yeah, well, as the, yeah, a, a lot of mafia we don't know about, do we? Um, but it, it, there is a tornado mafia in the MOD, in the Royal Air Force, and they were saying, you know, if we have to sacrifice something to keep the tornado in, in, in fact, the, the usual impression of how we fly then perhaps Nimrod, we'd have to agree that it goes. But that is exactly the point, isn't it? You can't have everything, and yes. if we have a capability gap, then we have it. But um, Christopher's right. The decision, essentially, because it was RAF capabilities, was, as it were, passed down to the RAF. And Nimrod maritime surveillance is not a priority for the RAF. Yet, if you look at us as an island with the seas all around us, with Trident, with the opening up of the Arctic, if ever there is a capability that we need is to be able to protect the further distant environment from us in the maritime context. And that's... Uh, Nimrod doesn't, isn't the only one, but it's a very, very important contributor to and that. And now we're going to have to buy an American system to replace it. Sit-rap with Still to come this week, the latest attempt to resolve the 40-year dispute in Cyprus. And exactly what kind of democracy are we building in Afghanistan? For too long, the mental health issues of our veterans have been ignored. The words of the Deputy Prime Minister Nick Clegg promising more help when they need it most. The government's promised extra help for former service personnel struggling to cope with the psychological impact of being in a war zone. So where is the 24-hour support line for veterans promised by ministers? It was meant to go live late last year, but still hasn't started. And new figures show exactly how much that help is needed. Around 10 servicemen and women every day need help for mental health problems. Former Army bomb disposal expert Kevin Iverson was left with post-traumatic stress disorder. We hear that for a lot of people it takes 10, 12, 13 years to manifest itself. With me it happened almost immediately. I was involved in one incident in particular uh, in Iraq that had a real effect. And that day and for days afterwards, I couldn't sleep. Uh, I lost control of my emotions. I got incredibly uh, irritable. I found I couldn't communicate with people. But then in the longer term, uh, my memory suffered. I started to um, hallucinate. The charity Combat Stress says calls for help are up by three quarters in the last five years. Robert Marsh is from the organisation. I think everything is moving in the right direction. The services now talk about health in terms of physical and mental health. The Army recently introduced a thing called TRIM, which is Trauma Risk Management, and people are saying that's helping an enormous amount. Uh, I think the government, it, government is listening, listening uh, to the concerns of military charities who are saying that there is going to be this increase in people suffering from uh, a perfectly honourable wound, a psychological injury. Well, Dr Nicola Fear is from the Academic Centre for Defence Mental Health at King's College and she's on the line now. Thanks for your time today. H- has there been a rise in veterans suffering psychological problems? Um, good afternoon, Kate. Um, I think... That there actually hasn't been a rise in the actual number of people with psychological problems. But what I think it's fair to say is that actually more people are coming forward to seek help for problems that they're suffering from. And actually that's a good thing because that shows that there are systems in place to make fit people feel confident and able to come forward and sort of put their hand up and say, I think I might need um, some support and some help. And what kind of systems are there? What kind of provision is there for them when they do come forward? I mean, obviously, the differences between those that are still in service and those that have left service. For service personnel that are no longer within the military system, they obviously fall under the remit of the NHS, just like um, the same as all UK citizens. Um, However, ex-service personnel are entitled to priority access to service 
to services, for example, secondary health care. But obviously to ensure that that happens, they need to make their GP aware um, that they are sort of ex-service, um, <clears throat> a member of the, of the service. See, that's the problem, isn't it? Because I suppose that's not something that necessarily comes to someone very easily who might be proud, who might not want to actually admit they've got a problem, to actually flag that up. I think you're right. You know, there's a kind, it kind of works both ways that the service or the ex-service personnel themselves need to kind of step forward and say, <clears throat> are you aware of my sort of previous military history? And I think as well it's about encouraging um, healthcare providers to actually ask people, you know, have you had previous military service? And, you know, as a society we're um, sort of, you know, the armed forces is shrinking, so sort of the general population are becoming less aware of, uh, you know, of military personnel and their needs. Michael Codner from Rusi is still with us in the studio. Michael? Yeah, absolutely. It's this problem that military people, whether they're still in the service or having left, do not want to ad- admit to what they consider maybe shame or failure in coming forward with a mental problem. I mean, it's not in the military character to do that, and that is a major problem. They're not coming forward for that reason, and if they can be encouraged to do so, um, uh, th- that may help to redress this problem. Christopher? There's another aspect of this, um, and it's on a much lower level. We mustn't think of people just having nervous breakdowns. Guy comes back from Falklands, you know, uh, from, from Afghanistan, goes home. Everything seems very mundane, even to the sort of, you know, way the knives and forks are laid out. It causes family tensions. Also, you've got the other side of it, and it's, uh, the TA uh, serving officers and, and, and men. Um, some like 10% of soldiers in Afghanistan... Do they have a tougher time, do you think, because they yeah, have to they flip come back, between the two so and they quickly. come back and they go back to the day job. Mm. And they don't have that sort of collective, sort of, uh, if you like, the arms around looking after in the battalion uh, or, or in the regiment. And that becomes even more popular. Uh, Nicola Fear, um, the government has actually been talking about all that it's going to actually do. Uh, this 24-hour helpline isn't up and running yet. Uh, are you confident that, that this is actually being done? with and it's a problem that's going to be uh, sufficiently resourced I would hope so I mean I think you know as uh, your other um, speakers this afternoon have mentioned you know this is an issue that is at the forefront of everyone's agenda be they the sort of you know um, the military um, you know the NHS you know people are aware of these issues and I think you know the service charities are obviously doing a great job there kind of promoting the services that they offer are you concerned they might have to pick up the pieces and do a lot of the hard work themselves um, I think, you know, there's obviously this balance, uh, fine sort of balance between what service charities can provide and what should be uh, provided for under the, the NHS. And, uh, you know, I think the respective departments are working to try and sort of um, sort that, you know, make sure the adequate systems are in place. Dr Nicola Fear, thanks for your time today. This is SITREP on BFBS. The 350th British soldier to die in Afghanistan since 2001 was killed in Helmand this week. Private Martin Bell of 2nd Battalion, the Parachute Regiment, has been described as a hero, displaying exceptional valour. We're often told our forces are in Afghanistan to help the country become a stable democracy, 
But what kind of democracy are we creating? This week, Afghanistan's parliament, which has been suspended for four months, finally met. The president, Hamid Karzai, had tried to stop it doing so for another month, claiming more time was needed to investigate allegations of election fraud. But he backed down after international criticism. Our reporter, Jeff Mead, joins us now from Afghanistan. Uh, Hi, Jeff. Uh, This all came to a head over the last few days. So what's been going on since the election exactly? Well, turbulent times indeed in Kabul uh, over the last uh, days and weeks. It's actually been boiling up since those parliamentary elections about four months ago. Uh, The election commission, which looked into the way that poll was conducted, rejected a quarter of all votes and disqualified 24 candidates who'd claimed to have won. Um, With the opposition gaining ground uh, in the seats that were returned and accepted, um, President Karzai and his party supporters became suspicious that they thought they had been uh, robbed of gains that were rightfully theirs. Uh, the president then wanted this to go to the... Uh, I understand that those gains... I understand those gains were actually withheld because they, they were thought to have been fraudulent anyway. Yes, I mean, there were... Of, of, of 249 members who were elected, 59... Uh, are currently under investigation. So there were clearly uh, real concerns about the way this poll had conducted. But because it was to President Karzai's disadvantage, uh, he faced a bigger opposition in Parliament. Uh, He wanted to hold off Parliament until the election court had concluded its investigation, which would have taken at least another month. The uh, legislators were not happy with that. There was a a real showdown. Uh, They won, and President Karzai has been significantly weakened in his political standing. Uh, Christopher, if Hamid Karzai had got his way, he'd have been ruling by decree for another month. Well, he would have been. But, you see, uh, uh, Jeff's right. Uh, he's weakened. That is, Karzai is now weakened. And he's weakened considerably. Even the Pushtun, his people, have started to withdraw the support. He's been warned of what's going on in the Northern Alliance, for example, that could be far more dangerous to him. And he's, he more or less ignored that. Also, we've got to remember, the military, the British, American, and every other military... Um, the United Nations observers and largely the diplomatic corps think that Afghanistan, with uh, Mr. Karzai at, his he- at its head, is largely a corrupt society uh, and it will be continue to be a corrupt society for a long time to come. And there is the problem. Our boy is Karzai, as much as we have doubts about him, and he's the one in power. The big problem for uh, Western governments at the moment is that Karzai is losing his grip One of the reasons he's losing his grip is he used to take his own decisions. Now he's got a small coterie which help him take those decisions. Those decisions have been proved wrong. And the thing about the election and the election commission, there were two commissions, one on fraud and one the way the thing was done, they have actually won out on this one. And so he's gone back, as from yesterday, into the parliament and he's gone back weaker with his, with his tail between his legs. Uh, Jeff Mead, uh, what kind of feeling are you getting from, from the military, the people you're working with on the ground and seeing every day out there? Well, of course, everybody has concerns about President Karzai and the style of his government, the cronyism, corruption, uh, the incompetence of it. Uh, and that, of course, you'd expect to be shared by the military uh, at every level. Uh, but as Chris indicated there, he is the only democratically, albeit imperfectly elected leader... We know how concerned the US are about him. Remember those WikiLeaks that he's weak and paranoid. But if they were to try and dislodge him, he's only a year into his second five-year term. That would be actively 
playing into the hands of the insurgents who would who would play that card of look foreign interference we've got to fight uh, to regain our country's independence so we stick with Karzai for better or worse uh, and meanwhile the campaign of course continues bit of an unhappy marriage uh, you'd think uh, Christopher um, now 350 if, personnel say, if we if we bounced him you'd have to be replaced by another Pushnun that at the moment is impossible that is the key Okay, so 350 lives have been lost, British lives. They thought they were doing it for a better Afghanistan. Is Karzai good enough for now? Uh, Karzai may not be good enough, depends on your ambitions, but as Jeff said, as I think everybody now believes, Karzai is the only game in town. Just as Musharraf was our boy in Pakistan, um, so Karzai is in, in, in Afghanistan. And for the future... The future is Karzai's, but a very much weakened Karzai, and it is an interesting way he will turn for support. As the only one place he can turn for immediate support and long-term support, as I say, to his own people, the Pushtuns. The Pushtuns have to, for the moment, uh, rule Afghanistan. And unless, if they stop doing that, then you get an even more unholy war. So what do you think will be happening, Jeff, over the next coming months? What are we going to be talking about to do with President Karzai exactly? Well, I think he's there. For, he's there to stay. There are. There is no prince over the water. I mean, others have been mooted. Uh, Dr. Abdullah Abdullah, who was the failed presidential rival, more recently Amrullah Saleh, the former intelligence chief. Um, but it would be extremely destabilising, I think, were that were they to move against Karzai, unless something uh, catastrophic happens. What we're seeing, and what I'm seeing here on on the ground, uh, uh, and you know, this is the latest of many visits I've paid to Afghanistan, is. The allies, ISAF, are seeing this much more as a way in which they can change things from the bottom up. Um, Kabul is very much seen as a money pit, almost a busted flush. The real changes are coming from the provinces up. That's why uh, people like Governor Mangal of Helmand uh, are, are backed strongly by, uh, by ISAF, the British and Americans particularly, because they think that there is more transparency at regional level. That's where changes can be achieved. Yesterday, I saw in Lashkagar, the capital of Helmand, more than 200 people trying to join the police force. And that sort of numbers are attracted to recruitment days every three weeks. Give you, gives you some instance of what's actually changing on the ground. That's where the money's being spent. That's where the, that awful cliche, hearts and minds, uh, are, are being won over. And as long as ISAF can continue to fight this war more smartly than they did, uh, with better targeting, uh, more precise strikes against the insurgents and, and, and their leaders, less civilian damage, then they see progress from the bottom up. Karzai will stay in control at, t at the top. But it's very questionable how far his writ runs down to uh, the far-flung provinces anyway. They tend to disregard him and get on with their, right. own, uh, their own business and improving things where they can. All right, Jeff Mead in Cambastian, thank you very much. Over the last four decades, there have been dozens of attempts to finally resolve the future of Cyprus. All have failed. But this week, the Cypriot president and the Turkish Cypriot leader have travelled to Geneva for talks with the UN Secretary-General. Could Cyprus finally be on the road to reunification? From there, Kath Brazier reports. For almost 40 years, both sides of the Green Line have failed to agree on issues surrounding governance, power sharing, the economy and property. Cyprus reunification has been given this kind of international impetus before. So what's different this time around? Rolando Gomez is the acting spokesperson for the United Nations Peacekeeping Force in Cyprus. Things slowed down at one point, at which point the Secretary-General Ban Ki-moon decided he would get it involved 
more personally. He called the leaders to New York in November to hear from them on what progress had been made. The Cyprus landscape tells its own story, with scarred and dilapidated buildings scattered across the buffer zone. The once luxurious Ledra Palace Hotel now plays host to the British contingent of the UN peacekeeping force. At the moment, that 7 Regiment RLC, Lieutenant Colonel J.B. Brown, is their CO. Over time, you, you begin to understand and get to know the personalities, and that, and that actually makes life quite interesting and, and also helps um, with us dealing with the issues that we have to deal with in the buffer zone. Understanding the locals is just one way of keeping the peace. For the most part, their frustration is aimed at politicians and not the British forces. We don't uh, basically live on the border. We live in the same country which has got a border. Sometimes we feel like domestic prisoners <laughs> because we are on, living on the same island, but we need to show our passport to go to the other side. History may show that the two sides will never agree, but not unlike the UN Secretary-General Ban Ki-moon, many still believe that a solution is possible and within reach. Kath Brazier with that reporter. Christopher Lee, the two communities have coexisted since 1974. Why change anything? Um, we, they've got to change eventually for all sorts of reasons. One is that Turks want, it, want into the EU. Unless there's an agreement on Cyprus, they will not get even candidature candidate membership of the EU and Kath says quite rightly you know the it's within reach but you've got to have very long arms and for the past <laughs> 10 years that's been even more likely the people I talk to say at the moment no but eventually it's more than generational now this time last week we were discussing whether the uprising in Tunisia could spread to other countries and there have been anti-government demonstrations in Egypt in the last couple of days um, what actually happens there, Chris, will have ramifications for all of us, won't it? Um, it does. I mean, it, it, we've got to remember that this is quite a... Diff- what's going on in Egypt, for example, at the moment, is quite different from what went on on, on, on Tunisia. Let's forget Tunisia at the moment. Um, Egypt is run by the Mubaraks. Uh, Mubarak would like his... Uh, President Mubarak would like his son to succeed him, but he's got no political base. Uh, another guy, the opposition, uh, opposition head, uh, Baradi, arrived this morning... In, in, in Cairo there is a focus for any sort of revolution, it's not the sort of street revolution that you saw in Tunisia uh, in Tunisia those guys uh, they were in trouble anyway and so they did a runner to, to, to Saudi Arabia uh, Barak is not going to do a runner. He's got a good security organisation. He's also the second. Do you think biggest... it's going to calm down basically in Egypt? Uh, it, it, it won't. It, it won't calm down immediately. He's the second biggest receiver of money from the United States in the region. The United States have got a big interest in keeping Mubarak in there, and just as it was in '56 with Gamal Abdel Nasser. Mm. He's also got the Suez Canal, essential to us. And we're back to what Michael was talking about, why you need a Navy to keep uh, supplies running through. All right, on that note, we'll leave it. Mark Codner from Roosey, Christopher Lee, thanks for your time. We'll be back same time next week. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye for now. This is Zip Rap on BFBS.